Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and let's get straight to it. This is an example of somebody throwing me out a request, and specifically throwing me out a request on Twitter. Aaron, or Aaron, you have made requests before. I love hearing from you. I still don't know quite how to pronounce your name. One of those surely is right, or you might sort of say, actually, the double A at the front is silent. Actually, my name's Ron, but I don't know. Always a pleasure to hear from you. So he said to me, what about the history of animation? I thought, yeah, that's a really good one because it allows me to touch on lots of different topics that I like, topics that don't necessarily get a lot of love on their own, but when you shove them all together, you get something really quite interesting. So this isn't going to be one where I'm going to say, and it goes all the way back to the ancient Egyptians or something like that. No, this obviously has to be in correspondence with the invention of the movie camera the invention of cinema, the moving pictures, things like that. So this goes back to the very late 1800s. And if you think about it for a moment, the whole thing about the, the moving picture started with a bet about when a horse is galloping, do its feet leave the ground? And so what they did is they got a horse to gallop, and basically there was a white sheet so that you could get a silhouette of the horse quite clearly, running along a very long white sheet. And at certain points, it tripped a camera so that it took a photo as the horse was passing by. But once you took those photos all together, because the background was always the same, it looked like the horse was stuck in the middle of the frame each time, so that when you flicked through the photos, you basically realized, hang on, this looks like that horse is actually galloping. And it is a matter of record. It's interesting. The jockey was actually a black man. So the first person ever on film was a person of color, which obviously that jockey had no idea what he was going to be starting. And indeed, nobody involved in this wager had no idea that it would create an entirely new art form. So from that, we then go into the very early period of movies. And so while we talk about early cinema or early movie making, it's not really anything like, even by the 1930s, what it was. There were no major studios. And at that time, it's all black and white. It's all silent. There were still lots of reasons to go to see a vaudeville night or a theatrical production of Henry III or something like that, Henry IV. The point here is this. 
it was a gimmick to begin with. There's the famous one, although it does seem to be a bit of an urban myth, that somebody filmed a train coming into a station in France, and then when they played it as projected onto a wall, people were so used to that actually being a real thing and not understanding kind of how cinema worked. Everybody ran screaming out of the place. That didn't actually happen, but a good story never stopped the world of cinema, did it? So, yes, there are some very, very early versions of animation. Some of them are so old that we're not even quite sure which year they came out. But if you want to talk about the very late 1890s, there could well have been some animation then, and indeed into the very early 1900s. George Melier, one of the fathers of cinema, he was mucking around with animation. I'm also going to say Segundo de Chamon. He's a Spanish pioneer of animation. So is J. Stuart Blackton. He seems to be a mixture of Anglo-American. So these are sort of like three men who were clearly pioneering. I was going to use the term mucking about with various different types of animation. Because here's the thing. If a painting is a still, then if you paint the same thing and just move it a little bit, just like with the horse, if we just keep overlaying those frames again and again, it's going to give the illusion of movement. So that's why we can't talk about, let's say, medieval illuminated manuscripts, because there was never any part two to any of these pictures. It's like, this is an image of Jesus, or here's a picture of knights jousting, and, and what have you. And, and then they moved on to the next image of completely unrelated subject matter material. So with that in mind, you needed the invention of something that could capture stills to give an illusion of movement before you could ever get to the world of animation. The history of cartoons and comic books, well, I've actually done that in a different episode. Feel free to listen to that one. You'll be able to find it somewhere. So this is a different art form, definitely. And I do feel obliged to say, you know, while we're into the early 1900s, while I've been talking about people from Europe, I am also going to mention that the very first verifiable animation from Japan came in 1912. Now, the thing is, once we're into the teens, the 1910s to 20, we're starting to get dedicated animated features. With those earlier people like Blackton, for example, or Melier, there's animation, things like stop motion animation which is obviously different to cell animation. So if you're trying to work out what's the difference between the two, so think of something like Chicken Run is stop animation. It's basically taking quite often a piece of clay, say a clay human, and basically you take a photo of that clay human and then you slowly move up an arm and then you take another photo and then you slowly move up that arm a little bit more and then you take a photo. And you do that so many times that when you play it back, it gives the illusion that that clay creature is raising up its hand and waving at you. And that's basically how Ardman animation works, okay? It's the wrong trousers, Gromit, and they've gone wrong. We'll come back to Ardman later on, but the point is that is a physical form of animation where you can basically just take the thing and move it around. And then there's the cell-drawn animation where in the frame you draw a picture and then you draw a slightly different picture and so on and so forth and then ta-da you end up getting what looks like movement because you're layering all these different types of still photos over each other. So those are two basic types of animation. There were others as well and I'll come on to some of those as we move along the timeline. But the point about this very very early stuff is it's usually some animation in something else. Like, particularly with Melier, basically he used animation as a form of what we would now call special effect. 
to basically tie in perhaps two different scenes or a visual trick. There might be a moment of animation, drawn animation, to give the illusion that something's actually happened that couldn't possibly happen. It's the first signs of the visual trickery needed to, you can believe a man can fly with something like the original Superman movie back in the 1970s, to, let's say, modern-day Transformer movies with computer-generated animation. So it all kind of starts here, but it's the animation enhances another story where there are people running around in them. Of course, all of this, even with the human beings, live action, it's still artificial. The camera is just taking images one frame at a time. It's generally, I mean, obviously at this time they hadn't worked it out yet, which is why sometimes re-cranking, replaying some of these silent movies, they're not quite at a modern frame wake, so they're either moving around almost frenetically, or they seem to be doing it in a semi-slow motion. It's just annoying from our modern eye, which is why you need computers to kind of put in extra frames so that you get a smooth 24 frames a second. So, that's what's going on there. That's all the technical stuff. Ooh, isn't it? I thought this would be a fun one about animation. You're just going on to me about science. Yeah, sorry about that. But we've got to understand what's going on here. So, it's really once we get into the, like I say, the 19-teens, that we start getting animation for the sake of animation and actually the creation of, of characters. Perhaps the most famous one that you might even have seen is famously Gertie the Dinosaur. And Gertie the Dinosaur is from 1914. So this is over 100 years ago. This is created, you know, the same time as World War I was breaking out. I mean, this is a very different world that we're dealing with here. And I've got to give a huge shout out to Windsor Mackay, who was a cartoonist who then decided to create the Gertie creation. And... Gertie is what's widely considered the first example of a of an animated character. Gertie has personality. This is not just a special effect. And indeed, the way McKay would actually do it is it was kind of part of a vaudeville act. He basically would be off screen talking to Gertie and some of the animation would then move and it looked like he was having a chat with a line-drawn dinosaur, which, come on, in 1914, that would have blown your mind. But if you watch the entirety of the animation, suddenly a little man appears on the back of Gertie, and basically the joke was, after the conversation, he would then walk around behind the screen at the right point, so it looks like he has jumped onto the back of the dinosaur, of Gertie, and then he rides off. Very, I mean, that would have been a clever trick in 1914, kind of cool trick even today, but it's the sort of thing where, again, well, Gertie, it's a very short film. It's not really a film, it's a short piece of animation, but again, it's actually being used more as a novelty act rather than specifically, hi, everybody, come on, sit down, and you are now going to watch an animated feature. The other thing that's going on about the same time as Gertie, only it's a, a year earlier, 1913, we got Raoul Barre and he creates the peg system. Now again, he's going to go, good lord, Jim, you've got to be more boring and technical. Okay, but think about this. If I'm drawing, let's say, 20 frames a second, you can kind of crank it down a little bit with, with animation. Don't have to do the full 24. And indeed, there are various tricks, particularly in anime, which we'll come on to later on, to sort of like, again, even lower the amount of animation. Because, of course, if you have to do 24 drawings just for one second of film, that is very time intensive. But here's the other problem. If you're drawing on one piece of paper, then another piece of paper, then another piece of paper, are you going to center it right? And so what Raoul actually worked out is 
in essence, if you peg down, if you if you basically have holes in the pieces of paper at the top of the page, which isn't going to be filmed, and stick them onto pegs, it means they can overlay perfectly. And indeed, now fast forwarding, let's say 60 years, you get sort of like animators from Disney talking about how they animated, let's say, the fox and the hound, a lesser Disney thing, and they'll show you literally line drawings from it, and they're literally flicking backwards and forwards, and they are perfectly aligned because of the peg system. So yeah, th this makes the animation smoother as well. Then in 1915, we've got the German Max Heischer inventing rotoscoping. Now, full disclosure, Ever since the original 1970s animated version of Lord of the Rings, I have never liked rotoscoping. What is it? Basically, it's a clever way of filming an actual real person in, say, a room, and they are giving you the markers to how to animate. So basically, there is an actor there waving their arms around, and then you draw over the actor... And then uh, is suddenly that actor is now, let's say, a monster dancing. So you've got the same movement. And indeed, in something like, and, and I will be getting to this, Walt Disney Snow White, there's a lot of rotoscoping going on. That is simply the best rotoscoping I have ever seen in my entire life. That is amazing. No notes from me in, in regards to that one. But quite often, it looks a bit cheap. It's almost like you can kind of see the person underneath it, and that's not quite so good. And indeed, Disney was notorious for reusing bits of animation to basically... Well, this, there's a huge debate about this. He thought that by reusing bits of animation, but then overlaying a different character to that movement, it would save time. But a lot of people found it, a lot of the animators found it, didn't really save any time because you spent forever trying to line up this new character, which might have a different body shape, to the original character. So things like the dancing between the dwarves and Snow White... That's actually reused for a dancing scene in the Robin Hood one, you know, where the Robin Hood's a fox. Incredible as he is inept, whenever the history books are kept, they'll call him the phony king of England. There are loads of these examples, and indeed there's a whole video showing you the amount of times that Disney has reused various bits of animation. You'll sit there and go, oh yeah, I know. now that you've shown it to me, I get it. Yeah, rotoscoping, you can see, at the very least, it helps animators understand the movement, the direction, the scale, things like that. So that can be pretty useful, but it's been used badly, shall we say. And then we come to 1919, and we get Otto Mesmer's Felix the Cat. Now, whereas Gertie, five years earlier, is considered the first animated character, what we've got with Felix the Cat is, you see, think about Gertie, it's one and done. Felix keeps returning. So he's the first serialized character. And you can therefore say, think of all of the cartoon characters and how they've been loads of different scrapes, etc. All of these can have a dotted line back to Felix, which is pretty impressive. Then in 1920 to 1922, we've got the Kansas City Film Ad Company, which is one of the least catchy names for an organization ever. But the thing was, it was a animation studio, and it had a few people, and they were all, all went on to extremely impressive careers. But undeniably, the most impressive of the lot was a guy called Walt Disney. 
So his background genuinely was animation. He was an animator and he was in essence from the first generation of animators. And so funnily enough, the Kansas City Film Ad Company, that didn't last too long. And so they all went their separate ways. And Walt, well, he created in 1927 the character like Felix the Cat that he thought would go forward and make him his money. Of course, I'm talking about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Yeah, the reason why Oswald isn't really remembered that much. And yeah, yeah, Oswald sort of died the death. But a year later, he tried again with something called Mickey Mouse. Heard of him? And indeed, in November of 1928, we get Steamboat Willie, which is the first animation with synchronized sound. This is one of these things, when I did the episode about 100 Years of Warner Brothers, and indeed Warner Brothers is going to be popping up again, it's a case of there was actually sound in some movies, but it's kind of experimental and flexible. But basically, if you say, what's the first feature film with, with a sort of soundtrack to it, the answer is The Jazz Singer. And it's the same thing here. Yes, there was sound in other animations before, but the first one that kind of turned it into a standardized procedure it was Steamboat Willie. So you can see the innovation going on here with Walt Disney. He is a man who is trying to push animation. Other people, what they do, they they find a way to do it and they're happy with it. But Walt isn't happy with it. He's just a genuine innovator in these situations. Then in 1929, after the first Mickey Mouse short, was Steamboat Willie. Disney then goes on to create the Silly Symphonies. And again, I guess a bit like Oswald, there's a reason why you haven't heard of them. And they didn't even do very well at the time. But the other thing I'm going to point out is this is another famous character at the same time as the birth of Mickey Mouse. In 1930, we get Betty Boop. And what's interesting is, again, if you go back to the Warner Brothers one, she wasn't a Warner property. But she's an example of another character that changed quite dramatically because of the Hayes Code that came out in 1935. So for the first five years of Betty's creation, she was a flapper. These were these good time girls that would sort of go to bars and just have a good time. And, you know, you might be sitting there going, well, that sounds like an average young woman in our days. And indeed, it's sort of that, that kind of type of lifestyle started about a hundred years ago in the 1920s in these speakeasies if you like it was a bit dangerous they had sort of very tight hairdos you know not long flowing locks like their mothers had these were very short bobs and also they had the flapper outfits where the skirt scandalously went down to the knee and no lower whereas again that's not what their mothers and good girls would have worn which let's face it it makes it pretty hard to dance in if you've got a skirt all the way down to the floor whereas this is pretty practical. Also, dancing in a basement somewhere, poor ventilation, it can get quite hot in there. Just having your legs exposed a little bit probably allowed the girls to breathe a little bit more easily. So all of this, but you have to remember at the time, this was a scandalous amount of flesh on display, a scandalous amount of young single women going to bars surrounded by men drinking liquor. You know, that all of this stuff you could see could cause a moral panic, but Betty was an animated one, and she even had a boyfriend ironically called bimbo but anyway and and so she absolutely spoke to young women 
of the time. It's a bit like when I did my episode on Barbie and I talked about Build Lily. The Lily was the original German creation comic strip that got turned into a doll that is the inspiration for Barbie, if you didn't listen to that episode. So here, it's it's kind of similar, only predating Barbie by several decades. What we've got here, predating Lily as well, I should add, we got Betty, and, and she's just kind of a little bit naughty. So the kids don't get that naughtiness, but to the adults, it's all sort of like, oh, she's a she's a bit saucy. And once the Hayes Code came in, it's like, nope, done. <laughs> at that point, we are not having Betty Boop acting the way that she used to. She's just basically too adult. And so she was put into a longer flowing dress. The boyfriend just disappeared. And she was, for want of a better phrase, neutered. Certainly, she sort of became completely sexless. And again, this is an example of how the Hayes Code wanted to clean up everything so that no matter who walked into a movie theatre in, let's say, 1936, there's no way that even if they're six years old, they would be appalled by the content. And I'm sure a lot of adults grumbled about that. But that's another story, okay? Incoming call. I'm just jumping in here to say... This is still Jem, but to remind you that my book, Hollywood and History, is out now. My basic sales pitch to you is this. If you like this podcast, you will like this book, because I look at how Hollywood has portrayed history. Do they get it right? Why do they get it wrong? It's a chance to talk about lots of really cool movies as well. So if this sounds like your thing, then Hollywood and History by Jem Daduchu is available now wherever you buy books from. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're now into the 1930s, and it's worth pointing out that meanwhile, while Betty Boot was being created, Disney was busy, and between 1928 and 1935, he was busy creating Minnie Mouse, we've got Donald Duck, and we've got Goofy and Pluto. So if you like, the whole Mickey Mouse family has been created by 1935, and obviously, fast-forwarding 80-odd years, those are all iconic brands to this day. You know, just walk around a Disneyland for that, but, you know, they're on all kinds of products and merchandise. Meanwhile, just as Disney was wrapping up, it's worth reminding you again from the Warner Brothers one, so from 35 to 42, Warner Brothers just went on a creative splurge. We're talking about Elmer Fudd, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and Bugs Bunny. All of these are created in basically a seven-year span from Warner Brothers, and what was pretty obvious is Warner Brothers didn't have the budgets of... Oh, Sylvester and Tweety also created at that time as well, and they just didn't have the budgets of Walt Disney, but what they did have is a bit more sassiness to them, and so they were slightly more anarchic, slightly more anti-authoritarian, but already by the late 1930s, Disney is seen as, I mean, super impressive. Nobody's going to beat them in terms of animation quality, but they are being seen as kind of the authority in the senses of all the positives and negatives there. Going back to 1929 with the silly symphonies that didn't really work is that was an example of early color. Color is already coming in to animation because it's basically easier to do in animation than it is in a live-action environment, for example. And it could also be a bit more esoteric, a bit more... The problem is that if you've got half the screen blue and half the screen brown, let's say, for the sky and the ground, that's going to look weird if you've got a human being standing there, because we know that human beings aren't blue. But basically, with animation, you can control which is in which half of the screen, and you're used to line drawings anyway, particularly when looking at cartoons in a, in a newspaper. So because of that, you're, you're kind of fine with it. Basically, your eyes are more willing to accept it because you already understand that it is not actually real life. So with that in mind, we're leading up to 1937, when we get Snow White. Now, Snow White was horrifyingly expensive for Disney. It nearly bankrupted the company. And the other thing is, while, yes, there have been, I think it's estimated there's been about a dozen feature-length animated movies before Snow White. It's one of these things where, technically, Snow White didn't do anything first. But what it did do is pull together a whole bunch of firsts to create something that literally nobody had ever seen before. And also, he did it better than anybody previously. So this is the really important stuff in regards to that. The importance of Snow White in 1937 is it's in full colour. There's no sort of like strips and things like that. If you think about something like The Wizard of Oz, that came out in 1939. That's two full years later. And you can see clearly the way it's set up. Basically... The average moviegoer was used to black and white movies. They wouldn't have had a problem with it, but then you get the rug pull when you arrive in Oz and then everything goes to colour. So to have something full colour all the way through two years earlier, that was like Avatar demanding high-definition 3D in every single movie theatre in 2009. It's that kind of technological jump forwards. They've been previously full colour. They've previously been full sound. 
And the other thing it had was multi-plane cameras. What does that mean? Well, unless you're using a few camera tricks, you're basically going to always look like you're in one dimension. People are just basically moving from one side of the screen to the other side of the screen, and we know that there's perspective going on. And whereas that's fine with a still camera shot, if you start wanting to move the camera, you'll just notice that you're just panning across a picture. So basically, what the multiplane cameras do is you literally have depth. You basically have the background painting, and then let's say 30 centimeters up, a foot up, you've literally got then on glass, you've got the animated characters in the foreground, and then just above that, you've got the camera. And so what that actually means is you can move that camera and the background moves differently to the foreground. So now you're getting a perception of depth. You're beginning to think that this is more realistic. And like I say, they used the rotoscoping and Snow White was one of the biggest financial successes of 1937. Indeed, by now we got the Oscars and in 1938, it doesn't win any Oscars because it's not actually eligible for any Oscars, but it was just seen as so important, such a landmark in animation and movie history that Walt was given an honorary Oscar and also with seven little Oscars with it, which is just adorable. And nothing like that happens nowadays in the modern Oscars. So if you like, recognizing the technology absolutely changed the world. I mentioned Japan and now I want to sort of jump back to Japan after we have the brief interlude of what is known as World War II. Sorry about that. Right, so basically we have what's widely considered the first bit of anime, a character called Astro Boy. Imagine a small boy, let's say about eight years old, who's a complete robot. So looks like a kid, but basically has rockets in his feet that allows him to fly and his arms can morph into guns. This is, doesn't sound very Western. This actually sounds slightly disturbing, but in Japan, fine. They were all fine with it. And so Astro Boy, as a comic book, which is called a manga in Japan, starts in 1952 and goes on till 1968. So I mean, this is an incredibly long-running manga series, which is not uncommon in Japan, but is not really necessarily what happens in the West. Now, you do get certain things like the superheroes, but even then, sometimes their runs finish and they restart again, etc. And certainly back in these days, it was unusual for something to just run that long. And what we've got, I love this, is so from 52 to 68 is when the cartoon, the comic book is running, the manga is running. And in 1959, they do indeed create a movie for it and they decided to go live action. And that is not well regarded. I'll just put it out like that. But in 1963, we get a full animated movie of Astro Boy, which leads into a TV show. And all the things that you would think of from Japan, you're getting that with Astro Boy. And things adapt. And there are all these animations coming out in the 60s and 70s, like Speed Racer, for example. But there are loads of them which have unpronounceable names because they're in Japanese only. But some of these are cut together to be made into socially acceptable Western cartoons. The one that I grew up with. I had, this is one of these things, I had no idea as a child that what I was seeing was some sort of Frankenstein's monster of a Japanese series. What it was called in Britain and America was Battle of the Planets. And what it looked like to us kids was that there's a tight-knit unit of people who are trying to 
thwart Zoltan, the baddie, but also help people as well. This out there to try and save the world, but not cause any problems. And the critical thing is, if things get really too hot for them, and it looks like they're all going to die, then they create the fiery phoenix, and they sort of go into suspended animation. Their spaceship turns into a phoenix, and they fly out of there, and it's like they die and come back again. Very Buddhist, very Japanese. And I love this. This is a huge hit in the playground when I was very, very little. But full disclosure, even though they've done their best, so in reality, this was quite a bloody and action-packed, i.e. violence-packed animation in Japan. And what they did is they cut all that stuff out. For example, there was only one guy, I think his name was Mark, had a gun. But it wasn't really a gun because it always fired and it fired out a rope from the butt of the gun. So the idea was, it looks like a gun, but it isn't actually a gun because you can't have a show kids TV animation where they're sort of mowing down people all the time. So they basically cut out all the bits that could possibly offend my little brain sitting in Britain. And then obviously these episodes ran short. So what did they do? They always went back to base. And back at base, there was this ludicrously cheap knockoff of R2-D2 with a robot dog that lived in the bottom of the ocean that was sort of connected to their base, which in hindsight, those two robots never once interact with the characters. And what they did is they explained what happens. Like, oh, well, they got back safe and sound and here they are playing ping pong. They'd have the same bit of cut footage of them, of them back at base, which was, you know, wasn't used in every episode in the original Japanese TV show, but was absolutely used to cut, you know, fill in time. And basically, if you look at it again, you can get clips of it on YouTube. You'll recognize the Japanese stuff is very Japanese and very anime. And yet the robot dog and stuff, this looks suspiciously like Hannah and Barbera because that's kind of what it was. This was American animation linked in with Japanese animation to calm it down. And so, yes, animation was, was still popular, but it was very cheap in the 70s and 80s. There are lots of rose-tinted glasses for things like G.I. Joe and Thundercats and Mask and Jason the Wheeled Warriors, all these things I loved when I was a kid. Inspector Gadget... Dog Tanyon and the Three Muskerhounds. Some of these are European, some of these are Japanese, some of these are American, whatever. But the point is, oh, of course, how can I leave out Transformers? That, that, that's, that's, that's a given. Star Wars even had some terrible animation. I'm thinking of Ewoks and Droids, which we were just hungry for any kind of Star Wars after Return of the Jedi, so we would have happily consumed anything. Very low quality by modern standards. We are the e so it was cheap, and certainly things like Transformers and G.I. Joe, the whole purpose of these things were to basically sell you stuff. And, you know, you've also got other things like He-Man. Don't really want to go into He-Man. I'm thinking about doing a standalone episode on him. But again, because it was so overtly selling, it was a commercial. It was a 30-minute long commercial, which was interrupted by even more commercials as well. Sometimes the commercials in the middle of it were showing you the toys that you'd just seen in the animated show. <gasps> Can you see how that works together so well? But just to tone it down a little bit, He-Man and others would suddenly, right at the end, stop, and you'd then get a character from the episode looking straight in the camera going, oh, this particular week, we learnt that blah blah was very angry, and we shouldn't be angry because anger doesn't solve anything, and that's kind of our, our point of the week this time. Thank you for this public service announcement. And those have been spoofed so many times by comedians, I won't bother with that. So 
what we got then is this sort of mishmash of basically very long commercials and completely edited Japanese stuff. And also it's worth pointing out that after Walt died in the 1960s, Jungle Book was the last one that Walt Disney at least had a hand in. It was released after his death. We get a complete decline of quality from Disney in the 70s and early to mid 80s. We get things like Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron. They spent a lot of money on. They thought it, they would link into stuff like Dungeons and Dragons, and it did no box office. And it was one of the most expensive flops. It nearly bankrupted Disney. Disney was going through a dark time. But what's interesting is for animation, things were about to get really good at the end of the 1980s. The year is 1988, and Katsuhiro Otomo from Japan, if you couldn't guess by the name, had been running a long-standing comic strip, a manga called Akira, and he'd turned it into an anime, an animated movie. The thing is, though, that the actual comic strip hadn't finished yet, and so it had to be a very truncated version of the story, and also he was going to sort of give away the ending. And it came out in 1988, and it was an absolute tour de force. This was the first time Japan was showing you stuff completely unedited. There was scenes of violent nature. There was gore. There was a scene where a woman nearly gets sexually assaulted. We'd just ne never seen anything like this before in animation. It's like, what, it's for grown-ups too? And also, the animation was so crisp. A very technical point, a lot of animation happens during the daytime because you can use bright, vivid colours. A lot of Akira happens at nighttime, and they had to invent dozens of new colours to be used in animation processes. It is utterly pristine. I believe you'll be able to see it on Netflix, and with modern TV screens and HD, you can see it with such crispness. I've done a whole episode on Akira. It is phenomenal. And you'll see how influential it was of American sci-fi and American movies even, you know, right up to things like Nope. You know, in Nope, for no reason whatsoever, there is the Akira slide. Now, the Akira slide, if you don't know what I mean, although, ironically, the kid doing it is not Akira, it's Canada, and it's just an absolutely definitive thing. Just type in Akira into your GIF bar on whatever social media you've got, and you've got a biker sort of stopping his bike in the coolest possible way in cinematic history. So Akira blew the doors off everybody and showed the West, Japan's really good at animation, what you got. And Disney replied one year later, this was coincidental, by the way, in 1989 with The Little Mermaid that started the renaissance that lasted for about 10 years with Disney. And moving forwards to the next one, we get Beauty and the Beast, which was... I was at university, I basically went on one of my first ever dates with a girl, turned out to be the perfect movie to take a young lady to, and it's just perfection. The songs are catchy and great, it's got a sense of humour, sense of peril, it, the animation is just to die for gorgeous, and just everything works. And the ultimate accolade is Beauty and the Beast is the only animated movie in history to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Now, it will never happen again because a few years after that, it was sort of basically realized with the quality of the Disney stuff because, you know, there was then Aladdin and then The Lion King. There's just all these amazing movies coming out, making a lot of money too. So Hollywood was very happy about that. So they ended up put bringing out 
Best Animated Movie Oscar, and the first one was won by a Japanese movie, Spirited Away. And it is absolutely, I mean, it it's not controversial. It should have won and did win. It is an amazing achievement. Again, if you've never seen Spirited Away, I so recommend that one. That's a Studio Ghibli one. And so I'm bouncing between both Japan and America here, and I've been mentioning some of the big boys, if you like, in terms of, of animation. But the other one that was happening in the 1990s is Disney kind of got ahead of themselves because they were doing these amazing animations and they were putting so much love into all these movies and they thought that The Hunchback of Notre Dame was going to be their next big movie. It wasn't. It basically bombed. Now, for the record, it is, again, absolute A-tier or S-tier, I think the kids... Ex I, please, ex somebody, if they can explain to me why, if we're rating things in video games or whatever... It goes A down to B, C, D, you know, etc. to down to F. But then above A, there's S tier. And when I've looked into it, it's like, it's God tier. Well, then it should be G tier, surely, shouldn't it? What does S stand for? I, it's super? But just just make A. It's it, This is the equivalent of 11 from Spinal Tap, all right? That's just a minor rant going on there. But anyway, I digress. The point here is that it's just, it is amazingly animated. A lot of love went into The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But it came out the same year that Pixar, which basically had a first refusal deal with Disney, released Toy Story. And again, computer animation had been around before. It had been in things like Basil the Great Mouse Detective to, to create the chains and some chase scenes in the background. And then they were animated over a bit like rotoscoping, basically. There's early animation in Tron, a Disney movie that flopped hard for the record. So the first fully CGI character was in a movie called The Young Sherlock Holmes when a stained glass window comes to life. As a child, I remember watching that thinking, how did they do that? I mean, the idea that computers could do something like that never even occurred to me. So we are now getting the newest form of animation, which going full circle, because if you remember, I said at the beginning, people like George Melier was creating animation for special effects, that today in the 2020s, yes, you can go and see an animated computer animated movie something like super mario brothers which has grossed well over a billion dollars globally and you could argue that mickey mouse is only remembered really by disney when was the last time he was in any kind of movie that made money mario right now is a bigger animated character than mickey mouse so that's that's a slight sidebar but yes you get fully animated movies like minions etc but then you also get animation cgi in movies as well. Think of things like the Transformer movies, for example, where you've got human beings interacting with what's clearly computer-generated, or you've got computer-generated fights going along a real highway or mountaintop or whatever. So it's genuine background real world, but then using animation as a special effect, which is exactly what Melier was doing about 125 years ago. So animation there are some people who try to ghettoize animation. Oh, there's movies and then there's animation. It's like the very best animation can hold its head up with the likes of something like The Godfather. Up is a kid's movie where everybody, including me, cries in the first 10 minutes. It is one of the most brutal openings of a movie ever. Forget about things like Platoon. Up will destroy you. And it's like, is this a message we want to be giving to kids? So it's just... 
you know, there is just so many amazing bits of quality from Walt Disney, from Pixar, from other studios, and yet still there is great animation out there as well. In fact, some of the best animation uses a bit of CGI to, again, a bit like rotoscoping, to make things work better, to make it pop a little bit, but then the sort of character that you get from cell-drawn animation, that's something that can't really be taken away. But for photorealism, it's CGI. And so we have spanned about 125 years, which is an amazing thing to say. You don't tend to think of animation being that old. And I really hoped, Aaron, Aaron, you enjoyed this episode. As always, another episode coming soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.